Halloween is coming up this weekend, and that makes it a perfect time to talk about witches. But I don't think there's ever a bad time to talk about magic. Oh, and today funny. we're talking with um, Emily Carding, an actor and an author of I Lost Count of How Many Books You've Written, who has written about the magic of Shakespeare in a book called So Potent Art, which already I love because it quotes one of my favorite lines from Shakespeare. Um, Emily, uh, it is the season, is it, for you and us? It is the season, yes. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, number 724, So Potent Art. and author Emily Carding's latest book, due to be published in July 2021, is So Potent Art, The Magic of Shakespeare, a very cool exploration of how Shakespeare's plays and sonnets are suffused with magic, prophecy, astrology, alchemy, herbalism, witchcraft, hauntings, and divine intervention. I've just received an advanced copy of the book, and I can't wait to read it. And when Emily and I spoke last week, I started by asking her whether So Potent Art is talking about actual magic or magic as metaphor? I'm talking about actual magic and I'm also talking about mystery traditions um, and it also includes incidences of supernatural um, occurrences in in the plays Um, but when I talk about magic I'm talking about actual magic um, and the various subdivisions of of magic um, that you might find in Shakespeare's works but what's also, I mean, which it's something that people have written about um, before, particularly hermetics and, you know, Renaissance philosophies, the Renaissance cult philosophies that you'll find in there, because obviously that was the time he was writing. Um, but what's different about this is it includes practical exercises at the end of each chapter, mm-hmm. um, which are definitely using magical work to work on yourself um, and the way that you relate to to the world and to the universe really so taking that wisdom that early modern wisdom and putting it in a postmodern magical framework um the difference between witches differentiating between witches and magic isn't that like straightforward of a, of a question mm. because some because when you talk about witches you can be talking about um traditional witchcraft folk magic or you can be talking about Wicca, um, which is a more modern development, but based on old grimoire traditions. Um, and then you can be Wiccan and not necessarily practice magic. So you see it more of a, as, a, as a religion, as a mystical practice. Um, and you can be a magician, the practitioner of magic without necessarily being a witch or calling yourself a, a witch. Right. Although other people might see you that way. And then I think when you take on any label like that, it takes a lot of thought because when you take on a label, it's not necessarily for your own benefit, but for the benefit of, you know, if you were a jar, it's for the benefit of the people looking from the outside in. So then you're taking on other people's understanding of what that label is. Well, and as we know from that documentary, um, The Wizard of Oz, 
there are good witches and bad witches. But you know, sometimes it's which I think typically is used as a pejorative, but it's not necessarily one. In fact, in fact, it frequently shouldn't be. Am I right about that? Yeah, it's a very individual uh, thing. And I think there's perhaps been a movement to sort of reclaim witch as an empowering term, but then there will still be people who use it as an insult. I think of it as like, you know, for in Shakespeare's time, all the most interesting women were called witches or shrews. Hmm. You know, it was used as a pejorative, as a, as a put down for women who dared assert not just, not just their own power, but any power. Um, hmm. So I find it as, I, 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 I too tend to think of it more and more as an empowering idea or, 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 and, and, and maybe that means that the word shouldn't be used this way, but, but I, it always feels like magic is, 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 is just science we haven't figured out how to explain yet. To the us. Arthur C. Clarke quote. Yes, that's right. I knew I'd heard it. I knew it wasn't Isn't original. It? Yeah, um, so, oh God, what's the exact quote? It's something about, um, Science, when it's advanced to a particular level, should be indistinguishable from magic, something like that. That's exactly right. Yes, exactly. Um, um, so is that, do you do you feel like um, Shakespeare was not actually knowledgeable about this stuff? Or was he drawing on other, what other sources was he drawing on to put this magic and, and supernatural stuff into his plays? I think it's a real mix. Um, because he loved his sources and he loved taking material from other places and then just making it better. But there's not a lot of Shakespeare that's really original in the sense of the stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of that, um, a lot of the mythic uh, contents coming from Ovid, etc. But um, when you start to get very deep into the language and you see some of the turns of phrase and the imagery that he's using, Mm-hmm. you realise that, that his writing is steeped in what was the philosophy of the time. So we, we, look, at, we look back at it now and we think, oh, that's all very, alchemy's all a bit other and um, the occult to people who haven't spent their lives immersed in it seems like a strange and exotic thing, but that was the science of the time. Uh-huh. So your everyday person, even the, the playgoers, many of them, especially the ones in the slightly more expensive seats, would have had a working knowledge of these philosophies. So it's not that unusual that they are in there. But what you have with Shakespeare is also um, because of his background, perhaps, we, we don't know much about his life, but we do know that he was not university educated, but he he had more of that country folklore. And he brings that to it. So you can see this real meeting of what you might term low magic and high magic in there. Um, the folklore of the fairies and um, and the herb law and all of those things. And that obviously deep love of the land that comes through in many of the plays. Plus he's able to talk in elemental terms in, and talk about astrology. And when you understand even just very basic alchemical symbolism, you start to unlock the meaning of certain passages which might not have made sense originally. And also the Kabbalah, which was um, very popular at the time um, after the the sort of the the wisdom of the Jewish Kabbalah started to spread because of the exile of of the Jews. And then it was Christianized and popularized in in the times. You have this Christianized version of the Kabbalah but then it, very appropriately, um, Merchant of Venice, for example, 
you get a lot of when you understand what you, you when you have the key to the symbolism you start to see it all in there right um if that makes sense it does and so 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 even for shakespeare's audiences you know a play like midsummer that or even macbeth would not have been quite so fantastical as we may think of it now with its fairies and spells and witches etc i mean this is a the, the, these were topics that even King James was writing about, you know. And, and the, the beings that, it, it was an interesting time because it was sort of in between very strong folk belief in these things and possibly the common people would have had a stronger belief in them still. And then the the humanist philosophies coming in and the, the educated rationalism coming in um, that started to mock it. So there was a fine line being trod in all of the playwrights at, at the time. Um, and some of them, Marlowe, for example, and Johnson take a more mocking approach or a warning approach mm. against against the occult philosophy. So Shakespeare seems to embrace them and he seems to have a love for them and portray them in a more um, in a more positive light. But yeah, these are subjects that whether they believed in them or not, the, the true actual everyday belief in them was still very historically close. Yeah. Um, so it was absolutely believable to have fairies on the stage, um, absolutely believable to have ghosts, mm-hmm. um, which when you look at a play like Hamlet, you still have Shakespeare putting things in there to, to sort of reinforce that, yes, you are meant to believe that this ghost is real, um, to almost reassure people, because these plays kind of need that level of reality to really hit home, to really work. Right. Um, in that sense, you can't really have Hamlet without the ghosts. It loses something of its potency. Right. And 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 it, but it both it both works in a symbolic way that oh my gosh, Hamlet, there's something really wrong with Hamlet. But yet it also works in a kind of a realistic way where you go, well, of course, of course, his father would come back and haunt. Yeah. That starts to become textual problems um, when you modernize it and say the ghost is all in his head, if we're talking about Hamlet specifically, because Shakespeare's very specifically given you Horatio, who is the most grounded, university educated, reliable, sort of the earth, best mate, skeptical character, intelligent, educated and skeptical. And he sees the ghost before we even see Hamlet see it. And then it's Horatio who tells Hamlet that he's seen the ghost. Yeah. Which is an early indicator in the play that you're meant to believe that that ghost is real. Now, later on in the closet scene, it's debatable because Gertrude doesn't also see it. But other characters have seen this ghost appear. And so we know we're meant to believe that that is is real in the sort of theatrical tradition of revenge tragedy ghosts. (laughs) But 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 then taken in and made very modern for the time by Shakespeare by making it a sort of a Catholic ghost. Mm, yeah. Um, who's in purgatory and purgatory in that time period had just been sort of banned. You weren't supposed to have purgatory anymore. So that it was Shakespeare himself was through these fantastical tales also commenting on the time that he was in and that shift of philosophies and the time that he was in and treading that thin line, which I think is really fascinating to delve into. Hello, 
I'm Adrian Scarborough, and you're listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Where can you RSC the RSC? Right now, the only place to see the remote Shakespeare Company is online. We've created a brand new page at our website, ReducedShakespeare.com, and a playlist on our YouTube page, where right this second you can watch us perform many of our epic abridgments from the comfort of your own shelter. You can also grab your own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, written by me and Reed Martin and beautifully illustrated by Jenny Mazels. It's on sale worldwide, and you can find links to independent bookstores in the U.S. and the U.K. on our website. And now back to my conversation with Emily Carding, whose new book, So Potent Art, The Magic of Shakespeare, comes out in July of 2021. I asked Emily whether she was drawn to Shakespeare first or to things magical. Always side by side. Mm. always and I couldn't tell you which really came first I mean I suppose really I was drawn to magical things first because I had dreams when I was small you know when I was a small child and perhaps hadn't had exposure to Shakespeare um I was having dreams that I didn't necessarily understand about going in through holes in in the side of a hill and visiting with fairies and so on um but I was one of those weirdos at school who loved Shakespeare immediately. Um, I didn't go to a posh school or anything, just went to a regular state school and nobody else seemed to understand Shakespeare. And I was like, it's great, I love it. We didn't have theatre um, or drama or anything at, at my school, not primary school or, or secondary school but um, or high school, um, but you know, just in English, just in English lit uh, class. I just loved it, I just loved the language. That's great. And um then as I as I got older started uh, with the with the magical path um yeah both the magical path and and the Shakespeare and theatre generally both really came to the fore when I left home to train as a as an actor um so I trained at a place called Bretton Hall which is up in Yorkshire it's on the nature reserve oh. um or it used to be it's, it's no longer there now up in Yorkshire um and so I spent a lot of time just in the trees and out in nature. And there was a little magic shop called Pentagram in, in the nearest town, Wakefield. I used to hang out and learn about things. I'd always been drawn to it. That's when I really first started to um, find that path and was also my first time properly training as an actor because we hadn't had it at school and not much at college. So, yeah, they were always intertwined. And then it sort of... Um, been a bit of a pendulum so I was like trying to focus on on the acting then I became pregnant with my daughter and had to leave acting and that's when I started writing and um, illustrating Taradax and all of this stuff and was very immersed in the magical world and left theatre almost completely it was almost too painful to even go and watch theatre because I wasn't doing it so I missed it so much I never thought I'd go back to it um, and then just like this inward pull back towards it was also Shakespeare um, driven um, so that's when in 2012 I um, found uh, 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 I wanted to go back into acting thought I'll do a postgrad because it's been like 11 years I can't just like decide to be an actor again and, <laughs> and the postgrad that I found in the nearest place that I could go at the time was the MFA in staging Shakespeare which um, included residencies at the Globe and it's just perfect and and I knew when when I went there that I'm like right I want my thesis to be on this 
Renaissance philosophies and the application of maybe those philosophies for actors. Did that lead you to the one woman show that you created? The um, the MFA did the, on the on the MFA I met um, Colbrun Bjort Sikristot here, and we started working together almost immediately, um, and we made we made a couple of shows together, including one called Shakespeare in Hell, which was uh, a mashup, lots of different Shakespeare plays and lots of different Shakespearean characters, using the original textbook, you know, mashed up and resourced and reordered, even like half a sentence of this and half a line of this, whatever. Um, and mashed up with Dante's Inferno. So it was all the different Shakespearean characters you might find in Hell together in the different circles of Hell. Yeah, and that was the first like thing that we really created together um, and produced together. And Richard III was, it was like five female actors, multi-rolling, loads of roles. And Richard III was one of the roles that I played in that. Um, and it just was such a good fit. And then he started like, this character was like, bugging me and I was like, I really want to play this character properly and it was Cole uh, Colburn who had the idea um to do it as a as a one-woman show um so we took that idea she got us residency in Iceland she's from Iceland she got us a, a theatre residency um I remember the name of the theatre it's gone um in Reykjavik anyway and we spent a couple of weeks taking the text and working it and bringing it right down and working ways to how to make it work as as a solo show is you bring the audience in as the other characters. And so we we had an open process by which you bring in friends or just the public to come in, an Icelandic public as well, you know, not not people whose English was their first language, to come in and be experimented on. As an actor and a writer yourself during this pandemic, do you do you have found that you still need to act or need to write? I have found I don't need to act, but I definitely need to write. I think I'm the other way around. The writing is what's earning me money at the moment. And I definitely have lots of ideas. Um, but with me as a writer, I enjoy having written something. Oh, but I don't I don't necessarily enjoy writing but I am pleased with myself if I manage to get to the focus where I get in the zone and I get a big chunk done I'm like yes yeah and then I can look back at it process is quite like it takes a lot to get going and I'm not one of those people who just goes I shall sit down and write here are some words it's like you're gonna get these words into just have another cup of tea yeah, I do feel like I need to be acting and I'm so glad that I have been uh, kept extraordinarily busy through what could have been a very fallow period. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. You can pre-order Emily Carding's new book, So Potent Art, The Magic of Shakespeare, wherever you typically buy books. Or if you're listening to this after July 2021, just go out and get the darn thing. Then send us your spells and potions via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can also find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSC Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener, and you can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily Carding. 
Thanks, as always, to Bearded Hag Matthew Croak, Web Services by Ginger Power Limited, Music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Aaron Morris. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Adrian Scarborough, who last night won the Olivier Award for Best Supporting Actor for his performance in Tom Stoppard's latest and possibly last play, Leopoldstadt. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. Please stay safe, stay home, and keep your masks on. I'm Austin Titchener, 724 2070 seconds of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. As we head into Halloween, and, and those of us in the States head into an incredibly important election, and as we head into tr- still seven months, eight months later, trying to figure out how to get out of this pandemic, do you have any sort of healing spells or <laughs> that we can chance we can say? Oh my goodness! So a lot of people have been talking about this in the magical community and, and magical workings and so on. And the general consensus is that we're in the midst of just an enormous shift, an enormous transformation, um, and that we have to sort of go through all of this really dark stuff to kind of force us to evolve and come out the other side. And so it's not necessarily something you can interfere with. Um, I would say look look to your own sources of beauty and inspiration and hold on to those and try your best to be the light in a dark place rather than seek it elsewhere. This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company, reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less.